Welcome back to the Big Amateurs and Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And you can also find my podcast on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all those places. And I have a blog that I started writing in about three years ago. I haven't done much with it recently since I switched over to the podcast format in March of this year. But there's some good stuff there, I think, and you can check that out at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right. Today is Thursday, December 30th, 2021, and we are down to the number one story of 2021, a year that may go down in history as one of the most consequential in college sports. And number one is the games go on. The games go on go on. If you listened to my last episode on the Austin decision, which came out on June 21st of 2021, you uh, may remember that I talked about this quote from the opinion, and the the opinion was authored by Justice Neil Gorsuch. He delivered the opinion of a unanimous Supreme Court. And Justice Gorsuch dismantled one of the NCAA's arguments. It's used for decades to try to scare federal judges into buying into the NCAA's amateurism scam. And that is that amateurism is essential for the product to exist at all. That we have rules of the game that are essential, and therefore our amateurism rules are essential. And one of the points that Justice Gorsuch made to make mincemeat of that ridiculous argument is that even after removing the restrictions on education-related benefits that were at issue in that case, The games go on. That's exactly what the court said. And when I first read that opinion in June, I really anchored on that line. There was something about that single little snippet that really jumped off the page to me and captured beautifully how ridiculous the NCAA's propaganda has been for decades. And this goes back really to the sanity code in the 1940s when the NCAA was really beginning to formulate its uh, modern business model, and then Walter Byers coming in the 1950s. There have been some really important changes in the college sports business model that have occurred in every case where there has been a change that could threaten the NCAA's autonomy as a national regulator or its amateurism-based business model, the NCAA grabbed all of its allies and went to the nearest rooftop and started screaming, this will be, this thing, whatever it was, this thing is going to be the thing that brings college sports to a fatal collapse. And the NCAA has been very successful at insinuating that fear-mongering tactic into the American consciousness. And because of the relationships they have with the most powerful institutions in America and in the world, quite frankly, the NCAA has been able to control the regulatory model with an iron fist through what ultimately amounts to a very high-level, sophisticated brainwashing process. And they have been very skilled 
at appropriating American values that pull the heartstrings of the American psyche, like amateurism, the purity of amateurism, and the student-athlete, and the scholar-athlete, and the collegiate model, and the educational model. And then they wrap all of those fluffy principles with the American flag and the apple pie and they are just shameless when it comes to propagandizing a patriotic connection to their product. But it is a product. And when the NCAA is put under the microscope in an environment that it does not control, and that's exactly what happened in the Austin case, from the district court level to the Ninth Circuit to the U.S. Supreme Court, when they're in that environment and they have nowhere to hide and their false ideas are exposed as frauds, what is left is nothing more than a Patious, arrogant, Soviet-style bureaucracy that has preyed on a labor pool of largely African-American laborers. But out in the court of public opinion, where the NCAA and the Power Five and all their in-system stakeholder beneficiaries can control the message, they have repeated a pattern of, on the one hand, using their megaphone to create the perception that the next change, whatever it is, is going to be the thing that's going to bring college sports to its knees. But then when that event comes and goes and the games go on, those same propagandists on the backside make it appear as if either they never really changed challenged that the, the thing that came to pass, or it was actually their idea. And they're responsible for this change because almost all the changes that have occurred that the NCAA and in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have viewed as a threat initially, they have ultimately come to be part of the business model by creating a new normal that actually is more beneficial than it is harmful. And despite that history, that clear history, the power of the brainwashing is still in play, I think. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to do this podcast, because you have to dig deep into what's happening in Congress, what's happening in federal courts, and to really tease out these narratives and the way that the NCAA has been so dishonest in getting its way in the quarters of power in the United States of America. And if you don't do that, you just say, oh, the NCAA is corrupt or the NCAA, it's all about money. It's not about the student athletes. That's not enough. Those are cliches. Those are bumper stickers. You need to show why. You need to prove why. And that's why I've spent so much time focusing on the litigation, because in that environment, the NCAA can't hide. They have to make actual arguments that they are bound by. The real NCAA is on display in the depths of the electronic vaults of these big antitrust suits, and it is an ugly, ugly show. And the same is true with their campaign in Congress. It's not enough to say that the NCAA is overreaching in Congress or that it's not entitled to antitrust immunity because we can't trust them to self-regulate. That's not enough. You have to actually read the transcripts of the hearing. You have to watch the hearing. You have to read the sworn statements that the NCAA Power Five and in-system stakeholders present to the United States Congress. And then you have to go back and look at who's lobbying for the NCAA and the Power Five and individual schools. And then read and reread and digest and analyze every single bill that has been put forth on behalf of the NCAA, the Power Five, and the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. And all the bills that are listed in these lobbying disclosures that show what the NCAA Power Five lobbyists are arguing for and what they're arguing against. And that kind of mass brainwashing doesn't happen overnight, and it doesn't go away 
overnight. There's not a single event that's just going to erase all of that and change it. When I started writing in my blog three years ago, and I was really thinking at the values-based level for myself, at what I wanted to accomplish and what I saw in the college sports marketplace in the 21st century. And then relating it back to my work with Dick DiVenzio in the 1980s and his campaign for athletes' rights and some of the things that he tried to get done, I framed my thinking about the entire business enterprise and how change was realistically going to occur around changing the way that we feel about college sports. This is about changing narratives. This is about changing culture. This is about changing the messaging. And we can have bills in Congress or bills in state legislatures or court decisions, but ultimately what's going to change college sports is the way that people think about it, the people who give life to it, the consumers, the fans, the students, the the people who are actually part of the experience itself, not the people all around it, these powerful interests that are uh, sucking money out of it, that are sucking off the pipe of the labor of these uh, revenue-producing athletes, but the people who are in it that are really part of the story, when those people look at the business model and they don't hear the word amateurism and think that it's a crime if an athlete gets a penny over his athletic scholarship, then we will have made progress. And my hope is over time, and it was really my initial goal in, in doing this work, is to try to just do whatever I could to help change the narrative. And I thought the best way to do that was to really be well-versed in the NCAA's tactics so that I, you can respond to them in real time as they're playing out. Because the NCAA machine is so efficient at just churning out the propaganda and coordinating the messaging through some very powerful megaphones. And it's almost impossible to keep up. Very few people who are commenting on college sports understand the NCAA's motivations and the multiple moving parts, like what's happening in Congress, what's happening in federal courts, what's happening in state legislatures, what's happening in lobbying, what's happening in the court of public opinion. And these issues are so complex at the regulatory level, at the legal level, that it's almost impossible to accurately and intelligently capture an important message and frame an important issue in a tweet or an Instagram message. And the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries are very happy to have the consumers and the people who give a life to college sports just saying, screw it, it's too complicated, I don't understand it, there's too much information, I can't keep up, pass the nachos, and what's on ESPN3? That is just how the NCAA, the NCAA National Office, the NCAA Governing Boards, the Power Five, the Power Five Conference entities, and the Power Five Conference schools, and all of the satellite interests, all of the big broadcast media outlets, that's just how they want it to be. It's perfect. They've created this walking dead fan base that they have absolute control over, and they don't have to offer any explanations for their business model. They operate in absolute secrecy. When you look at what's happening with this Constitution Committee. There's a reason that committee is made up exclusively of ultimate NCAA insiders. They don't want anybody poking around. They don't want people coming in and asking tough questions. And that is precisely why they launched this audacious regulatory power grab in 2019 to completely eliminate 
any dissenting voices. That's what totalitarian dictatorial governments do. You eliminate dissenting voices with your state power, and the NCAA has acted as an independent, rogue, sovereign state. The courts have allowed that to occur, and Congress has allowed that to occur. And that's one of the reasons why this Austin decision was so, so important because the dissident voices that the NCAA sought to eliminate in that litigation campaign, and it was a campaign, the NCAA was going to stop at nothing to get its request for antitrust immunity before the United States Supreme Court. But those dissident voices were the voices of sitting federal judges. And all they were saying, all Claudia Wilkin was saying, all the Ninth Circuit judges were saying is that these athletes are entitled to the same protections of free competition laws as anybody else in America. And the NCAA has to play by the rules of fair competition that any other industry in America has to play by. And for that simple request, that even-handed fair request, the NCAA came back and declared open season on these judges. And the NCAA has taken the same bad faith approach with state legislatures who stepped in to do on name, image, and likeness what the NCAA refused to do. They did that with California. The response was, up yours, California. Up yours, Gavin Newsom. We're going to sue under the Dormant Commerce Clause. So just be careful what you're doing here, buddy. That was the message that they sent. And then six months later, they're making it sound as if they were the ones who had the great idea to offer name, image, and likeness to these athletes. And just the way that they isolated, personalized, and attacked Claudia Wilkin and the Ninth Circuit judges, they do the same thing routinely to any athlete who dares speak up, any athlete who dares to say that he or she simply wants to be treated the same as any other free American in this country. Any athlete who does that is a bad actor. They are an existential threat. They are a rotten apple. They are the problem. And that's one reason why I love the Games Go On tagline. It's beautiful. It's simple. And it captures something that I think people who haven't been diving into the electronic faults in the NCAA Senate campaign or in all these federal antitrust suits can understand. It, may, it has resonance because they're part of the game and they're participating in it. And when you look at the NCAA's decades-long propaganda about the skies falling and this is going to be the end of college sports as we know it, and look at how it has used that argument in specific instances in specific contexts. And then when you sit that campaign, that fraudulent campaign against the reality that the real people out in the sporting world are experiencing, it looks ridiculous on its face. And not only do the games go on, but despite all of these changes that the NCAA said were going to result in the fatal collapse of college sports, this college sports marketplace is more vibrant than ever and it is more lucrative than ever. All of that stuff was a big fat lie. And when you say the games go on, you just capture that in its present tense and you're in it. And if I can just convince people to make that simple connection, that all of the things that the NCAA has complained about going back to the 1950s to try to control the marketplace and the labor force have been complete frauds because as they're selling that propaganda, the actual participants who give life to the sport are right in it participating. And they're not seeing the fatal collapse of college sports when they're sitting in a stadium with 100,000 people. 
So what, what I want to do here is just talk about some of the things that have occurred since really the sanity code, right? Uh, after World War II, that the NCAA said with the religiosity of an evangelical preacher would be the end of college sports if these things occurred. And then look at what happened on the back side of that and how effective the NCAA has been in both creating the impression on the front end that this is going to be the worst thing that could ever happen to college sports. And then on the backside, when that thing actually happens, saying, oh, wow, uh, this wasn't such a bad thing. And it was really our, our idea. And it's been good for college sports. <laughs> that, that duality has played out time and time and time again. So remember, back during the Sanity Code, there was a discussion about what the fundamental relationship was going to be between the institutions and the athletes. And the discussion was really on the terms of the scholarship. What kind of financial aid can institutions give to support their sports teams? And the line was drawn really between scholarships that really didn't place any value on athletic ability and scholarships that were essentially pay-for-play athletic scholarships. And then the issue of need-based aid came into the equation. And that kind of watered down this basic line between academic scholarships and then non-academic scholarships. So this notion was, well, we may consider their athletic interest if they have need, if they really need the money in order to attend school. Oh, and they have to be a good football player, then okay, that's all right. And after that, you had this discussion about the full athletic scholarship. And that debate caused all kinds of angst because people who opposed the full athletic scholarship said, look, this is outright pay for play because the quid pro quo is not a prospect's academic talent or potential. It's their athletic ability and skill and what they can bring to the athletic fields and, and courts, not the classroom. And that was absolutely right. There's no question that in 1956, when the NCAA adopted the full athletic scholarship, it was outright pay for play and the NCAA abandoned any rational conceptualization of amateurism. And the NCAA did a little preening there, trying to be on the right side of that debate. But ultimately, it capitulated. And, you know, Walter Byers talks about that. He was the president of the NCAA at the time. And he talks about that in his 1995 book, an expose titled Unsportsmanlike Conduct. And he said that was one of the most important decisions in the history of college sports. But when was the last time you heard anyone describe the athletic scholarship as outright pay-for-play and fundamentally inconsistent with the principles of amateurism. You don't hear that because over the years, the NCAA has propagandized that outright pay-for-play as nothing more than reimbursement for the reasonable expenses of attending college. And then they invent the term the student-athlete to distract from the true purpose of that athletic scholarship transaction. And that is the university gives a, an athlete, a talented athlete, a spot on the roster and a seat in the classroom and tuition room and board in exchange for their highly specialized and quite valuable athletic labor. That's the quid pro quo. That's the real quid pro quo. But the NCAA has been so successful in propagandizing that transaction as an academic transaction, an educational transaction. And, you know, in this O'Bannon suit that I've talked so much about, one of the ironies that got virtually no attention is that when the district court and then the Ninth Circuit permitted the full cost of attendance scholarship as name, image, and likeness compensation, 
it put it into the athletics scholarship. And it did that because they, the way that they thought about the full cost of attendance scholarship, even though it was denominated as no compensation, it was still part of this educational package. It's part of this education-related and academic-related scholarship. And it was ridiculous on its face. It was another form of outright pay-for-play because you're putting nil compensation into an athletic scholarship, which is nothing more than a business transaction that is pay-for-play. <laughs> Even really smart federal judges fall for that. And that's one of the reasons why I really perked up during the Austin oral argument in March, March 31st of 2021, because Justice Alito pointed that out. And I'm like, wow, where did this come from? I think he was just looking at this transaction and said, wait a minute, this is pay for play. You're talking about these education-related benefits and limiting them as if they are somehow going to undermine amateurism. But the athletic scholarship makes a mockery of amateurism. He came out and said that. That didn't have staying power in the way that the court really analyzed the case. But the nature of that transaction, that relationship as a primarily academic and educational transaction is so powerful now, so uh, deeply etched into American consciousness that we can't see it as anything else. But what's really important to understand about that entire transition away from any a reasonable understanding of amateurism and a focus on academics and education and into outright pay-for-play is that contrary to the concerns of people who opposed the full athletic scholarship, it didn't result in the fatal collapse of college sports. And really at the time, the concerns were mostly institutional, but it didn't result in the fatal collapse of higher education. You know, a lot of people would say that it has harmed the integrity of the academy. I'm not sure I agree with that. That's another discussion. But the impact of that scholarship was just that the, the market adjusted. There was a new normal. People redefined the relationship between the institutions and the labor pool. That's it. And the games went on. The games went on. And, you know, then we had the Board of Regents decision that completely transformed the college sports marketplace. And I would say in terms of practical effect, it is still the most important judicial decision relating to college sports, Supreme Court or otherwise, and is more important than Austin because it imposed a direct change on the marketplace. Austin didn't really do that. But people were saying, as Board of Regents was playing out, that this was going to be the death of college sports. And there was all kinds of speculation. After the Supreme Court issued its ruling in 1984, striking down the NCAA's monopoly over televised football and turning football over to the free markets. But there was spe speculation and fear that was going to result in an explosion in commercialism and professionalism, and it was going to be this runaway train. And guess what? That actually happened. But today, today, have you heard anybody, have you heard Greg Sankey or Bob Bowlesby or Mark Emmert or any of the people on this NCAA Division I Board of Directors Transformation Committee or anybody in the sports media say that Board of Regents was a bad thing, that Board of Regents just opened this Pandora's box that just took us away from the fundamental mission of higher education and has destroyed the, the integrity of the academic experience at our institutions of higher learning. Do you hear anybody say that? Anybody who's benefiting from the system? No. And all the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries are talking about antitrust immunities and protections from suits brought by athletes. 
Nobody's saying that the NCAA should be given a, an extraordinarily broad antitrust immunity to turn the clock back to 1980 and put the televised football market back in the hands of the NCAA. Where's that discussion? <laughs> no. Where are all these university presidents asking for that? If you're a sports uh, journalist and you try to make that argument, you're going to get laughed out of the office. But it speaks to the power of how the narrative changes and how the NCAA and its in-system stakeholder beneficiaries can flip the script. Because in this discussion about antitrust immunity, there are all kinds of potential issues that could be addressed through congressional antitrust immunity that have nothing to do with athlete compensation. They have to do with other aspects of the market that are admittedly out of control, like coaching salaries. There's no discussion about including in an antitrust immunity from Congress, but that's a legitimate concern. The Knight Commission in 2010, in one of its five reports, said that coaching salaries were the number one threat to the integrity of college sports and to the integrity of higher education. That single thing. You don't hear boo from the, the Knight Commission now talking about antitrust immunity that would allow the NCAA or the institutions to cap coaches' salaries. And again, what's significant about the world post-Board of Regents is that despite all of this fear-mongering, all this hand-wringing, all these concerns that really date back to 1981 when the district court issued its initial injunction saying that the NCAA's monopoly over televised football was a blatant violation of antitrust laws, dating back to that discussion, you have had people predicting the fatal collapse of college sports, and then these coaching salaries were going to be this existential threat to the college sports business model, and the spending was unsustainable, and we were on a collision course with calamity. And none of that has come true because we adapt to a new normal. We accept aspects of the marketplace that seemed unacceptable before they became normalized, and the games go on. The games go on. And when you say full cost of attendance scholarship in 2021, people hear that and their instinctive response is favorable. Yeah, that's a good thing. And the athletes have it. And it's something the NCAA provided and the Power Five provided that. And that's a step in the right direction. And these athletes are getting something that they didn't have before. And yeah, it took a while to get, but they did the right thing. That's how people think about the full cost of attendance scholarship. That is just on the other side of the earth from the facts, from the truth of how that scholarship came into being. And you have to press rewind really back to 2006, although the discussion over cost of attendance scholarships and providing these athletes something above the old scholarship limit that would allow them to have some pocket money for the sundry expenses of attending college that all other uh, college students could get through a federal calculation and, and through the financial aid process. But the old athletic scholarship was set beneath that limit. And these athletes were really in a world of hurt financially. So there had been discussions for a long time before 2006 about the unfairness of not allowing scholarship athletes to have the full cost of attending college. So in 2006, a group of athletes sued the NCAA in the white lawsuit. And that was one of these antitrust suits that was going to really be the death knell for the NCAA and amateurism and all this stuff. It got all kinds of hype. It turned out to be nothing. It settled for a paltry sum. The plaintiff's lawyers got a bunch of money. The athletes got virtually nothing. But at issue was this cost of attendance scholarship. And it's very modest. Depending on the schools, different 
based on what school you attend because all the calculations relate to local economic indices. But it basically is between, I don't know, 2000 and $5,000 a year. Not, not a lot of money. You know, for some well-off students, that's a spring break trip. A spring break trip or a skiing trip over Christmas break is a full year of cost of attendance for athletes who really need that money. And some of the African-American athletes from challenging financial circumstances are taking that money and sending it back home to help their families buy groceries and, and, and pay the rent. But the theory of the case was that it was an antitrust violation, that that scholarship cap below the full cost of attendance was an unreasonable restraint on trade. The case goes through some initial litigation, very limited litigation, and then the NCAA settles and the settlement doesn't require full cost of attendance scholarship. So the NCAA essentially won in that settlement. But what's important about the white suit is that the NCAA said in its defense, in its answer, in its motions, that if these athletes got a penny above the then existing scholarship limit set below the full cost of attendance, that would convert them into professionals. That would be outright pay for play, and it would bring college sports as we know it to its knees. That's exactly what they said. That was the very purpose of their defense. And I guess it's also important to point out that in 2006, not long after the white suit was filed, I think white was filed in early 2006, January, I believe, but later in the year, NCAA president Miles Brand went to the National Press Club and delivered a speech, and he did that several times over his tenure. And I've talked quite a bit about Miles Brand and his role in the evolution of the modern business model. But in 2006, he was facing a lot of heat. You had that white suit that was filed. You also had an inquiry by the House Ways and Means Committee expressing concerns about the NCAA's nonprofit status. And that's, that is the same year that the NCAA and that Miles Brand and his State of the Association speech announced the collegiate model as a financial framework for college sports. It was a big year. But towards the end of his speech, he went to the Q&A. And one of the questions in the Q&A was whether or not college athletes should receive quote-unquote stipends. At the time, in 2006, these full cost of attendance scholarships were really referred to as stipends, the cost of attendance stipend, this additional amount of money that these athletes could get for sundry living expenses. And Miles Brand, he gets a little theatric and he pauses and then he leans into the microphone and he says, no, emphatically, no. And then the moderator says, well, why not? And Brand then takes the podium and he says that those cost of attendance stipends would amount to pay for play and would transform these athletes from amateur athletes into professionals and would also transform them from students into employees. And Brand said that with a certitude that made clear that this was a line in the sand and that the NCAA was going to defend that line no matter what. And I think that they were largely successful, the NCAA was, in creating the impression in the court of public opinion that these full cost of attendance scholarships were bad news because they were going to threaten the very existence of the college sports product. So the NCAA rolls along after, I think the case settled in 2008, after 2008, and then we're rolling into O'Bannon. And even though O'Bannon was a name, image, and likeness case, the remedy that the court crafted 
or part of the remedy that the court crafted after finding an antitrust violation was the full cost of a tenant scholarship, and that was on the table through the litigation. One of the things that the athletes were saying should be part of the, the compensation here, the NCAA spent $140 million in legal fees and settlement in that O'Bannon suit to prevent these athletes from getting a penny above the then existing scholarship, which was set below the full cost of attendance. And they said the same thing they said in white with respect to nil compensation in whatever form and to any increase in the value of the athletic scholarship. They said this will result in the fatal collapse of college sports. College sports as we knew them will cease to exist. It was fear-mongering and it was effective. Because a lot of people looked at O'Bannon and said, this, these people are bad actors. They're just these greedy athletes coming in and trying to just shake us down. That was the way that a lot of in-system stakeholder beneficiaries viewed that O'Bannon suit. And some of that came out at the trial. Some very high-placed people in the athletics administration in big-time college sports were saying that very thing. So you had this kind of public impression that this cost of attendance scholarship was a problem. And, and then an interesting thing happened. In 2014, actually this started in, in 2013, but it came really to a head in 2014, before Judge Wilkin issued her opinion in O'Bannon. But while there was enormous uncertainty and fear among in-system stakeholder beneficiaries about what she might do, because they were concerned that she was just going to go off on the NCAA and basically take down amateurism itself. That didn't happen. And ultimately, O'Bannon actually wasn't a bad ruling for the NCAA. But in that fear, in that environment, the Power Five, through this autonomy movement, they wanted to try to get ahead of the game a little bit. And they were all of defendants in O'Bannon. They were sued in, in, in O'Bannon. So they had a front row seat to what was happening in that lawsuit. But they wanted to get ahead of any uh, threat in terms of what Judge Wilkin might do. So they said, whoa, we're going to give the uh, full cost of attendance athletic scholarship. And they put that out there with headlines and ticker tape and balloons and American flags. And they really made a big show of the fact that they were fighting for these athletes and they wanted these athletes to have the full cost of attendance scholarship. But that argument only came up, that issue only came up when it started to look pretty clear to people paying attention to that O'Bannon suit that Judge Wilkin just might very well bring the hammer down on the NCAA. When it suited their purposes, they tried to co-opt this cost of attendance scholarship as their idea, and they're doing this wonderful thing for athletes. And in the litigation, ultimately, as I noted earlier, the uh, cost of attendance scholarship was included as a nil compensation remedy. And notably, the Ninth Circuit, when it was reviewing the case, it specifically said that it was going to keep that aspect of the ruling, the judge's ruling, that cost of attendance scholarship was going to remain in the scholarship under federal order so that the NCAA and the Power Five couldn't pull it back, couldn't get rid of it. So while technically, while this cost of attendance scholarship the Power Five gave wasn't a form of name, image, and likeness compensation, it wasn't denominated that way, it served the same purpose. And they were under a federal court order not to set 
the value of an athletic scholarship at below the full cost of attendance. Yet the Power Five and the NCAA on the backside of O'Bannon go out into the public arena and claim credit for giving these athletes the full cost of attendance scholarship. And that narrative, that false narrative is now unchallengeable. If you tried to convince somebody, just Joe Blow fan, or even somebody working in an athletics department who's new to the business or the NCAA national office, you try to explain to them that full cost of attendance scholarship was the product of federal antitrust litigation and that the NCAA and the Power Five blessed that scholarship with the federal judiciary's boot on their throat, they would look at you like you were speaking Pig Latin. And that's just the way that the NCAA operates, but it speaks to the power and their ability to completely shift the narrative. And there is zero evidence, zero evidence that those cost of attendance scholarships have had even an ounce of negative impact on consumer demand or the college sports marketplace or the popularity of college sports. All the arguments that the NCAA was making in 2006 that that scholarship would bring college sports to a fatal collapse turned out to be a complete fraud. And on the backside, the NCAA pretends like they never took that position. And importantly, the games went on. The games went on. And then in Austin, in I guess that was filed in 2015, I think, just as O'Bannon was wrapping up, Austin's filed. Maybe Austin was filed before Judge Wilkin issued her ruling in O'Bannon. I can't remember. It was close in time. And as I discussed in the last episode, Alston was whittled down to education benefits. And the NCAA was making the same argument in Austin about these education benefits. And the NCAA is an education nonprofit. Seth Waxman, the NCAA's appellate attorney, in the Ninth Circuit argument, began his argument by saying that these education benefits, if they're permitted and the NCAA isn't allowed to restrict them, that this will change college sports as we know them. It will bring college sports to a fatal collapse. That was his argument right out of the blocks. And that is an argument that the NCAA propagandized through its uh, media machine. That this is just terrible and this is going to be the fatal collapse of college sports. That was an argument that they were making in their briefing. And that's an argument that Justice Gorsuch and the rest of the court just slapped down. And it didn't take them long. <laughs> they were pretty efficient in that slapdown because it was a ridiculous argument on its face. But the NCAA made it, and they're now going to be making the argument, as I mentioned earlier, at, at some point in the future, that these education benefits are really their idea all along, and it's a wonderful thing. Hooray for the NCAA. Let's give it a standing ovation. And again, as the Supreme Court explicitly stated in its opinion, that even without these education restrictions, you know, with the existence of these education benefits, the games go on. The games go on. And so next on the list, name, image, and likeness. Again, the NCAA spent $140 million and, what, six years in O'Bannon saying that over our dead body will these athletes get a penny of name, image, and likeness compensation. And that militant opposition to nil compensation continued through into 2019. And you, you have to remember that the O'Bannon litigation, although the, sub the substantive litigation ended in 2016, the attorney's fees litigation didn't end until mid-2018. 
And that's less than a year before this whole name, image, and likeness debate gets stirred up in a different context. And this was the state legislatures coming in because the California law was, was coming into place. And North Carolina Congressman Mark Walker had introduced a bill that was going to try to force the NCAA to offer some name, image, and likeness compensation. But you have to remember that the NCAA's opposition continued and they were threatening to sue California under the Dormant Commerce Clause. They were saying this is going to be the end of college sports as we know them. This is going to result in the fatal collapse of college sports, and it's going to turn consumers away. And this is outright pay-for-play, all the same arguments. It was only when they started to lose that argument in the court of public opinion that all of a sudden they commandeered the name, image, and likeness argument and then began this cynical darkly cynical campaign in the Senate to use name, image, and likeness as a Trojan horse to get in front of Congress to ask for these extraordinary federal protections and immunities, antitrust immunity, preemption of all state laws, challenging NCAA compensation limits, and a declaration that athletes can't be employees. One of the biggest regulatory power grabs in the history of American sports. But they were going through that with the belief that nil was bad news and was going to be a, a direct threat to college sports as we knew them. And that was the fundamental template of all these hearings in the Senate in 2020. And as I discussed a few episodes ago, when that campaign just collapsed in June of 2021, and then Mark Emmert had to wave the white flag on June 30th of 2021, seven hours and 40 minutes before July 1st, when all these state nil laws were going into effect, Mark Emmert immediately turned around and took the public position that he was following through on his promise to provide name, image, and likeness compensation on a dime. He turned that narrative. I did a couple of episodes on that. This was just an epic failure of NCAA leadership and Mark Emmert's leadership by not doing what he said he was going to do on name, image, and likeness. And to this day, not a single rule, not a single word of bylaw 12.5 relating to promotional activities that regulates and restricts name, image, and likeness, not a single word of that has changed. There hasn't been a single voluntary rules change on name, image, and likeness. There's just this interim policy and this dump at the feet of the institutions. Mark Emmert turned around the next day and stood in front of microphones and claimed that he had saved the day and he's responsible for these athletes having name, image, and likeness compensation. And he had powerful people in the media pumping that message. Anthony Gonzalez, who's been carrying the NCAA's bags in the House of Representatives, he's an Ohio representative in, in the House. And He's been pushing for a name, image, and likeness legislation that isn't as athlete-friendly as he wants to say, but he's been a face person on all this. He comes out on his website right as Emmert is dumping this nil, and he says, hooray for Mark Emmert, hooray for the NCAA. They made good on their promise. Those were his exact words. So the NCAA immediately flipped that script, and they were largely effective in that. Because I don't think people now today look at what happened in June of 2021, and particularly what happened on June 30th of 2021, as an NCAA failure. They view it as nil compensation. We got nil compensation. And while it's technically true, it's not because of the NCAA. It's in spite of the NCAA. But that's not the public narrative. And again, it just speaks to the power of the NCAA's role as a propagandist. But most importantly, in the context of the games go on, is that 
the uh, this unregulated nil market or less regulated nil market without these extraordinary federal protections and immunities didn't result in the fatal collapse of, of college sports. And that was their argument in Congress. Greg Sankey's making that argument. Mark Emmert's making that argument. Bob Bowlesby's making that argument. Michael Drake, former chair of the Board of Governors, is making that argument. Power Five athletics directors. I'll, I'll go down the list. They were all saying this will be the end of college sports as we know them unless we have these federal protections and immunities. They were a precondition to, the, to any name, image, and likeness market. And when that congressional campaign fell apart and that market came into existence in spite of the NCAA's incompetence and without all these federal protections, guess what? College sports did not come to a fatal collapse. And then, of course, we have this transfer market, this thing that the same people, the, the, the same in-system stakeholder beneficiaries who wanted absolute control over the labor market and didn't want these athletes to, to have the mobility, the market mobility that they have now, they said, this will kill college sports. This will be the end of college sports. And there's a, a, a lot uh, that we don't know about that market. But guess what? After that change, the games go on. And then there are a couple other things I just want to throw in there. This is really outside of the context of NCAA propaganda and hypocrisy because some of these things were things that NCAA wanted uh, to try to enhance the value of its basketball product. But I'm thinking back to some of these fundamental rules changes in college basketball. And in the early to mid-80s, there were talks about fundamentally changing the rules and adding a shot clock and a three-point shot. And when I played at Duke, 81 to 84, we actually had a, an experimental year in the ACC where in conference, we had a shot clock and a three-point line. The three-point line was inside the top of the key. It was really uh, kind of a silly three-point line. I wasn't crazy about it. I'm an old school guy. I wasn't big on the shot clock. I don't even know. That was a 45-second shot clock, I think. Could be wrong. Maybe it was less than that. But it didn't seem to be that material in kind of the way that we ran our offense. We typically would shoot within, well, within whatever the, that shot clock was. But it had the feel to me of this ABA-like gimmick. There was the American Basketball Association, which was a counterweight to the NBA back in the, I don't know, 60s, 70s. And it was viewed as an inferior league, although there were some incredible players in that league. But they were using gimmicks and fancy uniforms and all kinds of fan-friendly things at the stadiums. And they had a red, white, and blue ball. But there was a lot of marketing around that. And these rules changes in college basketball in the in 1980s, at least to me, and I experienced it. I saw that in real time. It had that feel to it, a, a gimmicky thing. And I don't think Coach K will honestly was crazy about it. And then ultimately the NCAA adopted that as a formal rule change in the, I think it was the 85, 86 season maybe. But I recall Coach K making some public comments about how ridiculous he thought this was. And he said, well, maybe we can draw a four point line. I, I agreed with that. I kind of, in some ways, still agree with that, but that just shows you how fuddy-duddy I am. But there were people saying that this was going to be the end of college basketball. The NCAA, in my judgment, this was as we're transitioning into uh, Board of Regents and after when the NCAA lost its football empire and was trying to enhance the value of the basketball product, I thought, or I think now, I didn't think this is at the time, I was too stupid to know what was going on. But when I look back on it, I think that was an attempt to try to enhance the entertainment value of men's basketball because that would increase its market value as well. And it has turned out to be something now that we can't imagine not having. It's 
completely changed the game. But there were a lot of people, not just Coach K, there were a lot of other people. Coach Smith, Dean Smith, felt this way. Obviously, he had the four corners offense, and he was very good at, at time management. He managed the clock probably better than any coach in the history of college basketball. And he didn't want those restrictions. And there were other prominent coaches who didn't think highly of it. And they were concerned that it was really going to be a problem. And it turned out to be exactly what I think Walter Byers hoped it would. And that was this explosion in the entertainment value and then the overall market value of the product. And today we can't imagine college basketball without the three-point shot or the shot clock. The same was true with freshman eligibility. I should have thrown in freshman eligibility on this list because back in the prior to, I think it was 1973, freshmen weren't eligible to compete on varsity rosters. And when there was discussion about changing that, you had all these people, NCAA people, saying this will be the death of college sports. This is a horrible thing, and this is inconsistent with the principles of higher education and academic integrity and all this happy malarkey. This is going to be an end of college sports as we know it. And it only took a few years to expose that as a myth, just another myth. Now we can't imagine college sports without freshman eligibility. And guess what? The games go Ah, the games go on. And I guess I should also just throw in one and done. In 2005, the NBA imposed this rule that you had to be 19 to be eligible for the NBA draft. And that meant that players couldn't go straight out of high school, even though they were clearly ready. They had to play a year in college. There weren't any alternative pathways back then through the G League or any of these alternative leagues or the European option, whatever it is. You pretty much went to college for a year. And there were a lot of people who felt like that was really a bad thing for college basketball. I have my own feelings about one and done. I'm not a huge fan of it. I'm not sure there was a large crowd of people saying that one and done was going to result in the fatal collapse of college basketball because that market's such a small market, a very unique and very specialized market. But people were saying it's not good for college basketball. And then when the Commission on College Basketball was formed in 2017, in October of 2017. One and done was the whipping boy. When I first read that report, I just laughed and I said, you have no control over this. This is an, an NBA rule. And until the NBA changes its rules, there's nothing that you can do as a college sports regulator. But they made that the centerpiece of their recommendations on, on the game itself. And they just beat the hell out of one and done. It's a horrible thing. And it's just terrible for college basketball. When the fact of the matter is, it's been great for college basketball. And I'll just use Zion Williamson because he's the easiest example. Since 2005 and this one and done rule, if you look at the one and done players, Zion Williamson's probably the most popular, the most valuable product, one and done product that's come into the marketplace. This is after the Commission on College Basketball report and Mark Amateur and all these people at the NCAA are still, oh, one and done, one and done. It's a problem. We're going to make a change immediately, immediately. Do you think that Mark Emmert didn't want Zion Williamson suiting up in a college uniform for the college basketball product? Zion Williamson was the best thing that happened to the NCAA that year. And he is there because of the one and done rule. If there's no one and done rule, Zion Williamson's the number one pick in the NBA draft when he's coming out of high school. So... <laughs> The NCAA. Again, they bitch about all these things, but then they're very happy to take the benefits of the things that they're bitching about. But boy, Zion Williamson was a windfall profit to the entire basketball sports industrial complex.
his freshman year. And what I want to say to put a bow on this is that through all of these changes, and this goes back to World War II, you've had these shifts, these changes, and some are more important than others. But in most of these situations, the NCAA has resisted change and it has claimed to the public that the next change was going to result in the fatal collapse of college sports. And guess what? The games go on. If the next thing, whatever it is, and I'm going to start talking about athletes as employees, and I'm going to talk about the their labor rights and the options that they may have and self-help and collective bargaining and, and all those things. But the next change, whatever it is, is not going to result in the fatal collapse of college sports as we know them. It's going to be another thing that's going to change the market. There will quickly develop a new normal, and the market will respond to it intelligently as markets do. And the games will go on. The games will go on. And the reason that the games will go on is because of the beautiful values that this country is built upon. Free competition, free markets, rough and tumble free enterprise, the wild west of free enterprise, and unleashing the human resources that we have in this country under principles of fundamental freedom and liberty. And that is happening in every aspect of the college sports marketplace except the labor market. And that is un-American. And when you look at all these changes and you look at how the market has adapted, and I'll use Coach K here. And again, this isn't a perfect analogy because this really isn't an NCAA issue. But one of the things that has made him such a brilliant coach, and I would say one of the uh, best coaches in the history of all of coaching, not just college basketball, but it has been his ability to adapt to fundamental changes in the game, in the marketplace, in the recruiting environment, and how you make your program attractive. All, all these things that these really complicated moving parts that go into building and maintaining a successful big-time college sports program, and it, it, whether it's football or men's basketball. But Coach K has done that at the highest level because he has adapted. And when you look at his career, 42 years, you know, <laughs> I was a freshman his first year at Duke. The, the fact that he was able to maintain such a high level of success for such a long time is just really mind-boggling to me. And I, I, you know, I may talk a, a, more about that at some point, but one of the things that he's been able to do is to keep the same level of success throughout all of these fundamentally different markets that have existed in college sports and the environment of the game and the nature of the game and the rules of the game. And that is quintessentially American. That is the American value system in action, and it's a fidelity to those basic principles. And in the sports industrial complex, the sports entertainment industrial complex, there have been massive changes, particularly in the technologies that deliver sports programming. ESPN is a great example. I take some shots at ESPN, but they have been brilliant in adapting to changing circumstances, even in what some think is this dinosaur model of uh, cable subscription access and delivering your product through traditional cable packages. And that's becoming a dinosaur. And ESPN is, I think, carrying a laboring ore and keeping that market alive. But ESPN has made some changes and it's diversifying and it is still the, the best uh, sports programming outlet in the world. I don't think there's any question 
about that. But that's the product of adaptation and change and the willingness and ability to compete. They're out there competing. And they're trying to put together the best deals they can, the best products that they can. And they have a damn good product, you know? <laughs> Universities are doing this. The, the nature of the big-time university has changed along with the value system in higher education and in society at large, along with the ways that universities go about uh, acquiring publicity, prestige, social currency, loyalty, and money. And that's all built around branding and marketing now. And so the way they operate is different. They've adapted. They're changing. The, the market of higher education is changing. And I guess I need to throw in the conferences as, as economic units. They're competing out in the marketplace and making things happen. And that was really the fundamental premise of the athletes' experts' opinions in both O'Bannon and Austin, particularly in Austin, where the experts were trying to look at an alternative model to the NCAA monopoly over the labor cost. And the model was competition. And their experts pointed out that in almost every aspect of the big-time football, men's basketball marketplace, outside of these national championships, the conferences compete. It's built on competition. They've competed beautifully, and they've, they've put together some incredible products. And that is the result of the operation of free markets, free enterprise. And the Wild West is a great thing, but in these discussions in the Senate about image and likeness, everybody said, well, there's going to be a Wild West marketplace for nil. It's going to be un unregulated. We need the federal government to come in and solve it. Lindsey Graham said that. Mr. Free Markets and States Rights. And I'm like, I heard him say that. And I'm thinking, yeah, Lindsey, the Wild West is a beautiful thing in free enterprise. But in this one area, we've just said no. And it's not a defensible no. It doesn't make sense. It's not going to kill the sport. And the evidence, the overwhelming evidence is that not only will any changes that allow these athletes to participate more freely in the marketplace not harm the product, it will enhance the product. Through all these changes, the market has grown. It's growing and growing and growing. And it's not going to stop growing because we are Americans and we will keep it moving. And so in this entire free enterprise system in this entire big-time college sports marketplace, the two things that stand out as un-American are, one, the suppressed labor costs, the fixed cost, cost of labor at the value of an athletic scholarship, and the NCAA Soviet-style bureaucratic state. They are the outliers, yet they have been the chief propagandist, the NCAA has, in trying to convince people that they're on the right side of American values. And anybody who disagrees with them is the outlier, the bad actor, the rogue rebel, and the fringe lunatic. And they just have that so backwards. And that's what a unanimous Supreme Court said in Austin. And it's my belief as we head into 2022, there are going to be some interesting things that will present themselves, I think, in 2022. And Starting in the new year, I'm going to start talking about some of those things, particularly in the context of actual labor rights and labor relationships. But to close out 2021, it was a remarkable year. And it was also a year where I think the irrepressible, irresistible American values that, that drive this country prevented a miscarriage of justice in the Senate or in the Supreme Court. 
And on the backside of some of these extraordinary events, the athletes, at least right now, aren't shackled by decisions that are rooted in uh, 70-year-old thinking. There's a lot of work to be done. And the Power Five is going to be right back in Congress making the same arguments that the NCAA was making in 2020. We're going to pay close attention to that. But this was a victory for American values. It was a victory for liberty and freedom and hope. This is, there's hope for, these, for the athletes going forward. And I just think that's a, a beautiful thing. And so I want to close this out and wish everybody uh, a happy and safe New Year's. And I hope you all are as full of gratitude as I am to be in this wonderful country and have the freedom that we have and the opportunity that we have. So with that, I will close this episode out and this amazing year of 2021. So I want to thank you so much for joining. It's truly an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.